Now, right up front, I'll admit something that you already know. I am working my way pretty throw, pretty slowly through the text. I got that. All right? Uh, and the reason that I'm working so slow is I told you right up front there's an important theological truth, a theological reality that I just felt we really needed to take some time and, and work our way through. Uh, and that is, of course, the fact that not all faith or not all belief is truly saving faith. Not all faith is really uh, salvation, uh, salvific uh, belief. There is such a thing as unbelieving belief, if you will, a, a superficial belief. And, and that uh, is, in fact, what we see here in this portion of Scripture uh, in John 8. It is evidenced by the rest of the context of John 8 that I've read through uh, previously with you. Uh, those who supposedly believe in Jesus, uh, again, you see, as you read through the context, a little bit larger, the fact that their faith is not genuine. And I don't want to rehearse all of that because we've spent a lot of time on that. Uh, but let me just remind you that I did spend at least one uh, um, entire sermon showing you the context uh, of that reality, including the verses surrounding this introduction here in our text, the remainder of John chapter 8, that that kind of belief that's going on here in verse 30 and 31 is not salvific, is not genuine. We went to a variety of different portions of, of Scripture uh, in the Gospel of John to show you that same reality. It's a truth that's taught elsewhere. And there's an unbelieving belief, again, a false faith. We went to several other texts in the book of Matthew. We went to Matthew 7. We went to Matthew 13. And, and uh, those texts that were related to this issue that really stand as warnings uh, about the reality of false faith, uh, about the kind of faith that does not save. Uh, again, unbelieving belief, if you will. And it's a repeated warning all throughout the New Testament to make sure that your profession of faith is genuine. Because the reality of the fact is the demons even, quote-unquote, believe. Uh, they believe the truth surrounding uh, Jesus, the truth surrounding the person of Christ, but obviously they're not saved. So, so the truth is there's a real reality of, of deception, that not all professions of faith are genuine. There is a counterfeit faith, a false faith. Uh, last time I tried to... Uh, uh, put forth some of the marks of authenticating faith, saving faith. Uh, we looked at the admonition out of Second Corinthians 13, 5 uh, by Paul that says, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in you unless indeed you fail the test. So Christ in you would be the ultimate test of genuine salvation, a life transformed because of Christ that you are no longer who you used to be when you were apart from Christ, but now in Christ your relationship with him and your entire life has completely changed. Uh, certainly the Apostle Paul, who wrote those words in 2 Corinthians 13, would testify to that reality because he, before he came to saving faith, he was a Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee, a very religious individual. But in his pre-conversion days, he was a uh, persecutor, a murderer, a blasphemer, a violent aggressor against the church of Jesus Christ. But once he met the risen Christ, once he met the risen Savior on the road to Damascus in, in Acts chapter 9, his life was never the same. His life was completely transformed and changed. Because that's what happens when somebody meets Christ salvifically. And when people come to genuine faith in Christ, their lives are changed. Uh, that person who has come to a genuine faith in Christ manifests that reality by, again, a changed life. They have an enduring love for God, an enduring love for Christ, a devotion to Christ. They, they are willing to obey Christ at all costs. 
that they openly and freely admit the lordship of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ because, again, that's who he is, and that person, Jesus Christ, has absolutely transformed and changed their lives. People who come to genuine saving faith, they are new creations. Now, someone who comes to uh, the Savior, someone who has repented of their sin, they've come to a complete end of themselves. They've turned away from themselves. They've turned away from their sin. And there's been a complete wholehearted turnaround and, again, transformational change in that person's life. That's somebody who is genuinely saved. Somebody who is genuinely saved has come to understand there is no thing or nothing or no one uh, more precious than Christ. Therefore, that person is willing to give up everything for Christ. All of his earthly relationships that he holds most dear, that we would all hold most dear. A person who comes to faith in Christ realizes that Christ is more valuable than all of the earthly relationships that we have. Christ is more valuable than all of the earthly possessions that we own. Christ is more valuable than even one's very own life. And a person who comes to Christ is willing to give all those things up if called upon. A person who has come to a genuine faith in Christ loves Christ with all their heart. He has taken Christ as his Savior, and he has given himself back to that very same Savior. And his dependence is upon Christ and Christ alone. His, his eternal destiny is based on what Christ and what Christ alone has done on his behalf. So the reality of unbelieving belief, again, uh, false belief, if you will, false conversion is out there. And to examine the uh, call from the Scriptures to examine ourselves to see if Christ is indeed in us, to examine our lives, to see if our faith is indeed genuine. Now, I know that when these kinds of issues are brought up, there are some people with an overly sensitive conscience, if you will, who, when they listen, uh, especially under strong, convicting preaching of God's truth, people come, some people come to a, a, a fear of the lack of the, the assurance of their salvation. So sitting under strong, convicting preaching on God's truth, people struggle with doubt. They become unsettled. Some people become paralyzed. Uh, some people become depressed. So before we move on to the text, I really felt convicted that I, I really need to address this issue, at least in part. And, and I'm going to do it, which from my perspective would be very quickly, uh, because I'm not going to turn it into a multiple uh, series of sermons, which I think it could uh, very easily. And I just want us to understand assurance from a biblical standpoint. Now, obviously, there's some people who have assurance of salvation that they have no right to. We see that in the context of John chapter 8. You see it with the religious leaders of Israel who thought they were on their way to heaven, but Christ repeatedly tells them that unless they believed that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God, the truth is they were on their way to eternal hell. So they had a false confidence. Having rejected the truth, they have no idea of the reality of their eternal destiny. But God doesn't want his children to be confused over this issue. He doesn't want his children to be confused over the issue of their salvation. And I think, in part, most people who lack assurance of salvation do so because they don't understand that salvation, listen, is entirely the work of God. Salvation is entirely the work of God. Uh, put a mark there. We're going to do a little bit of turning around, turning from spot to spot this morning. But uh, go back, go to uh, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And let's pick it up at verse 4. 
Ephesians 1, verse 4. And again, I don't write this. I just read it to you. It's what it says. So listen to what it says. Ephesians 1, verse 4. It says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Let me stop and ask you a question. What were you doing before the foundation of the world? Do I need to give you a little bit more time to think on this one? The answer is absolutely nothing, right? You weren't there. Not only you weren't there, were you not there, God was not asking your opinion on anything before the foundation of the world. You weren't choosing, you were not choosing anything. As salvation, again, is entirely the loving, gracious work of God. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us, verse 5. Poorizo is the word. It means to predetermine, to decide beforehand. In the New Testament, the word is used of God decreeing from all eternity or foreordaining, appointing beforehand. He predestined us to adoption of sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Go to chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we all too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, and by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith that is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast." Salvation is ultimately and completely a divine, sovereign operation. And the assurance of our salvation is built on the historic reality of what God himself has accomplished through Christ. Now let me tell you something. God knew that you were a sinner. God knew that you were a sinner, right? That's exactly why he sent Christ into the world. That's why God sent Christ into the world. That's why God developed this plan of redemption before the beginning of the world to send Christ, his son, into the world to pay the penalty for your sins, all of your sins, past, present, and future, by his power to secure your salvation eternally. This is what God has done. Romans eleven twenty nine says, The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Isaiah forty-three twenty-five. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgression. For my own sake, I will remember your sins no longer. So when God forgives your sin through Christ, God forgives your sin. It's a completed action. 
Psalm 103, verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgression from us. If God chooses to forgive our sin and to remember our sin no more, who in the world are we to bring it back up again? Someone once said this, Why what you cannot forget, God chooses not to remember. That's a tremendous truth. He's taken our sins as far as the east is from the west. He's removed our transgressions from us. How far is east from west? Infinite. What you can't forget, God chooses not to remember. Now, whenever you have a theology of salvation that involves the human effort, uh, then you have no security of salvation, you know, and have no assurance of salvation. Because human beings, we stumble and we fall, but not God. When God sets out to do something, God accomplishes that task. And again, salvation is all of God. By grace, we who are saved, we are saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It is entirely the work of God. The work of, not the work of man, but the work of God. Therefore, salvation, our salvation, is first and foremost grounded, listen, in the objective word, the objective truth, the objective word of the living God himself. Take your Bible and turn uh, back to uh, Romans. Romans chapter 10. Verse 9, Romans 10 and 9, <clears throat> if you confess, <clears throat> excuse me, with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, next uh, four words, you shall be saved. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. Verse 13. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's objective truth. And we're not asking your opinion. We're not asking how you feel about it. That's objective truth. That's the reality of what God says to be true for those who have eternal life. They believe upon Christ. And again, salvation is utterly and completely a divine, sovereign operation. And again, assurance of salvation is built on the historical reality of what God himself has accomplished through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the historical reality is that God the Father sent the Lord Jesus Christ into this world to be the sin bearer, to stand in our place. And the truth is that God the Father displayed Jesus Christ publicly as a propitiation in his blood upon Calvary's cross, as the only way to turn away his righteous anger, his wrath against our sin. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So again, our faith is bound in the historical reality of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, and not just the historical reality of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, but what? The historical reality of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 4.25, he was delivered because of our transgression, he was raised because of our justification. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the most monumental fact of all human history. With uh, the exception, perhaps, of the incarnation, right? The coming and the 
death, burial, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our, our faith is bound in historical reality. That's why historical truth takes us to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. I'll just read it for you because you know it. It allows us to say there is therefore now what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 ends with the fact that nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now think back to our study a few months back or a year ago back. I can't remember when it was. When we were going through Ephesians 6. Turn over there. That section of the armor of God. And obviously I can't spend a whole lot of time here because I I preach multiple sermons on Ephesians chapter 6. And if you want to listen to it, they're online. You can go back and listen at your leisure. But I want you to see Ephesians 6. I want you to see how Ephesians 6, this portion of Scripture, can help you in your battle for assurance of your salvation. Now, in Ephesians 6, we're called to stand, to stand firm in God's truth. And we're called to realize that we're part of a spiritual battle. There is a constant war uh, going on in the life of the believer that begins, listen, even really before salvation begins. As the word of God comes to our ear, the message of the gospel, Satan comes and attempts to snatch that word so a person cannot respond to it. That's part of the parable of the soils we went through a couple of weeks ago in Matthew thirteen nineteen. And then you come to faith in Christ. You're a babe, if you will. And uh, as a little child, a little Christian, you are there hanging on to your faith. And what does Satan do? Well, he comes and sends a flurry of false doctrines your way to confuse you, to toss you to and fro in an attempt to take you away from the truth. And throughout our entire life, as we go into maturity, Satan is always there accusing us relentlessly. There is spiritual opposition that is real. There is spiritual opposition that is always. But Christ wants us to grow in grace and in spiritual maturity. And, and, and Satan is always trying to take our faith away, attempting to destroy us. Peter says he's going around like a, a roaring lion, lion looking for someone who he may devour. But our text says in John 8 and 31, if you abide my word, then you're truly disciples of mine. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. 2 Timothy 2 and 26 says Satan wants to make you a slave. He wants to ensnare you. He wants to take you captive. Christ wants you free. Satan wants you enslaved. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes, the wiles, the deceptions, the lies of the devil. Verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We're in a real great uh, spiritual battle verse 13 therefore take up the full armor of god that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm verse 14 stand firm that's the third time if you're counting stand firm therefore having girded your loins with truth this is objective truth this is the word of god This is the truth that transforms and changes us, that makes us more and more conformed to the image and the likeness of Christ. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, the breastplate of righteousness and the armor of God is not our righteousness. It's the righteousness that belongs to God that he gives to us. 
It's his own righteousness. And this righteousness actually protects our, our, our minds, our feelings, our emotions. Uh, in, in the old days, uh, people used to think of the bowels as the seat of emotion. So you put the breastplate on so that your innards don't get attacked. And it really means the seat of emotions, our feelings. Uh, and, and that's where Satan most often attempts us, uh, attempts us, where Satan most often attacks us. He tempts us in our thinking, our feelings. He, he wants us to think wrongly so that we would believe wrongly, so that we would feel wrongly. So we're desperate and need to get this big piece of the middle covered, right? We're, we, we need the breastplate of God's righteousness. We need his own perfection. And God has imputed to the believer the perfection of Christ. Our sin debt is paid full in Christ. It's an irrevocable transaction that, again, can never be changed or never be, be reversed. We are who come to faith in Christ, we who believe, are covered in the righteousness of Christ. Therefore, we're acceptable before God. That's the great declaration from the supreme sovereign of the universe, the righteous judge of the universe, that all men in Christ are forgiven. The great exchange is our sin for Christ's righteousness. God takes all of our sin and places it upon Christ, and Christ takes our sin and is punished in our place, and we get in exchange the perfect righteousness of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. And listen, it's not just a legal declaration alone, but it's a reality. Because Christ has given us life. The life of Christ has been given to us. The imparted righteousness of Christ. We who used to be dead in transgressions and sin, trespasses and sins. Now we are new creations in Christ. Again, old things pass away, new things come. It's because of the life of Christ, the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit. We're, we're not perfect in Christ, I understand that, but there is a desire to be obedient. In Christ, there is a desire to live a holy life, a desire to look like Christ. There is a, is a desire to no longer let sin reign in our mortal bodies, bodies that we should obey its lust. There, there's a desire to present our bodies no longer to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but to present our bodies to God as those alive from the dead and the, our members of our body to righteousness unto God, as it says in Romans chapter 6, right? Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Verse 15 says, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, when you go to battle, you need good footwear. Soldiers are desperate for good footwear. They need something on their feet that protects their foot, but that also allows them to maintain contact with the ground, to hold firm, right? They can't wear... Um, what are the things the kids wear? Slides, flip-flops. You're not wearing that in the battle, right? You need to have good footwear. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, it means in the context of the spiritual battle that is going on in our conflict with Satan, we need to stand our ground so we don't slip, so we don't slide, so we don't fall when under attack. The NIV says, with your feet, fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. That's a, good, uh, that's, a, that's a good picture of the gospel of peace. Have your feet readied, fitted with readiness. Now, what is verse 15 talking about? Let me tell you what verse 15 is not talking about. Verse 15, having your feet uh, shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, that is not talking about you taking the gospel to other people. That's important, but that's not what this verse is speaking about. Verse 15 speaks about you taking the gospel to you. 
That's what verse 15 is talking about. Having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. This is talking about you taking the gospel to yourself so that you can stand firm in the spiritual battle that's going on and understand the peace that the gospel provides for you. Having your feet, uh, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace gives us as believers a sure foothold in the spiritual battle in which we are engaged. And so when Satan tempts us to despair, when Satan tempts us to anxiety or to doubt, the truth of the gospel, as one writer puts it, are the cleats of the believer's sandals that provide him a firm grip. And that's what you wear when you're in football, when you're on a grass field. You wear cleats that go down into the turf. That's what the Roman soldiers wore. They didn't wear flats. They didn't wear dress shoes to battle. They had cleats so they could stand firm. Now, put a mark there and and, uh, 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 turn back to Romans again. Romans uh, chapter 5. Let me show you something here. The gospel of peace is, again, the truth of what God has done for us in Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still helpless... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And again, I repeat myself, God knew that you were a sinner. Verse 7, one would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man some would dare even to die. Verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Justified, rendered righteous, declared righteous, pronounced righteous, pronounced just before God. Verse 10, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Reconciled, catalasso, means changed. Returned to favor. The enmity, the hostility is over. For if while we were enemies, we are reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So what is the gospel of peace that we're to put on? What is the gospel of peace that we are to speak to ourselves? It is the fact that both God and man were at war. And Christ has brought peace. Look up to the top of the chapter. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of what Christ has done, we are no longer enemies of God. Because of what Christ has done, we are no longer objects of, his, of God's just wrath. We are no longer ungodly. We are no longer unright, unrighteous. We've been changed. We've been transformed. We've been reconciled. We have been returned to favor with God the Father from ungodly sinners to those declared righteous or justified before him. And we are called in this battle that's going on to stand firm in these truths. We have peace with our God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The war is over. Which again means that there is no longer any opposition from God towards us. It means that real objective peace has now come. And listen, it now means that God is on our side. God is on our side. God stands with us rather than against us. 
having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, again is you preaching the gospel to you. And that allows you to stand firm, anchored in the truth, immovable, never slipping, understanding that God is on your side. And when the enemy comes against you to tempt you, to discourage you, when he comes and says something along the lines of what a lousy Christian you are, you're not good enough to be a Christian. Look at you. How, how can you continue to call yourself a Christian when you mess up so much? How, how can you can tell, call yourself a Christian when you continue in sin? Certainly God must not love you. When he unloads that list of accusations of your sins and your failures in life, you just keep preaching the truth to yourself. You just keep preaching the gospel to yourself. You just keep your eyes focused on Christ because he is your help, he is your hope. Colossians 3 and 1. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You stand firm in the battle. You stand firm in the conflict. You're confident because you're standing firm in the truth against the lies and the accusations of the devil. And when he counters with all of the accusations of your sins and your failures, instead of you listening to the voice of the devil, you listen to the voice of God who says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? That's what having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace does. It allows you who by faith in Christ, who have believed in Christ, it allows you who are forgiven in Christ to stand firm. When you're under attack, and when the devil comes and reminds you of how bad you are, how utterly unworthy you are, you can turn it around and you can remind him of how great Christ is. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That allows you to confidently not just read the words, but to confidently say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and if God is for us, who can be against us? Romans chapter 8. Now go back to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 6. Stand firm. Therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, verse 16, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith. It is The shield here is our basic trust in God. It is a complete confidence and a complete reliance upon the person of God, the power of God, the purposes of God. It's trust in him, and it's trust in him continually. It's trust in his word. It's trust in his promises. It's trust in his provision. It's trusting him to protect us in this spiritual war that is going all on, uh, going on around, uh, all around us. That he alone is our refuge. He alone is our shield. He alone is our protector and our help. It, it is a realization that he's for us. Again, he is on our side, the sovereign of the universe. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able, divinely powerful is really what that means, you will be able to extinguish, next word, some. It's not what it says. You'll be able, divinely powerful, powerful to extinguish all. Every single one. 
of the flaming missiles of the evil one. What are the flaming missiles of the evil one? All of his lies. All the lies of the devil that he assaults the saints with. All the fears, all the doubts, all the worries, all the anxieties, all the panic. The lies that were hopeless, the lies that were not worthy, the lies that were not loved. All the relentless fiery assaults and darts of the enemy that he sends our way that could literally burst into flame and be destructive unless we stand behind the shield of faith. Again, God himself in his word, it quenches, it puts out all those lies, those flaming missiles. It completely destroys the flaming missiles of the evil one. And when Satan relentlessly attacks as he does, trying to drive us into the depth of despair, we stand behind God himself. He is our shield. Again, we don't listen to the lies of the devil, nor listen, we don't listen to ourselves. We're done with ourselves. We don't listen to our feelings. We take our stand firmly planted with God in his word, and we speak to ourselves the truth found in the word of God, the truth that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The truth that if God is for me, who can stand against me? The truth is, if God did not spare his own son for me, but gave himself up for me, how will he not also freely give me all things? The fact that nothing can ever separate me from the love of God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We take our stand on the truth and we talk to ourselves. We speak to ourselves the reality of who we are in Christ. Justified, forgiven, reconciled, sons and daughters of the Most High God at peace. We used to be outcasts. We used to be aliens. We used to be strangers, but not anymore. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ and radically transformed and changed. These are the things that we've got to constantly speak to our own hearts. So when we find ourselves in a situation where it seems like the devil is getting the upper hand, instead of continuing down the path of discouragement, depression, anxiety, instead of being defeated by his lies, we need to remind ourselves, and not just remind ourselves, we really need to command our heart to believe the truth. Right? We need to command our heart to believe what is true. Who God is, what God is, what is God, what God has done for us in Christ, what God has pledged to do to us on or for us on our behalf in the future because of Christ. So in the middle of the chaos of the spiritual war that's going on, the conflict that's going on all around us, when the flaming arrows of the evil one are flying all around you, in the midst of your trial, the midst of your difficulty, you can let self speak. You can let your circumstance has, have a voice. You, you can let your feelings dictate your action and reaction, or you can stand behind God. You can hold him up as your shield. You can stand behind the shield of faith and again command your heart, command your soul to hope in God and to hope in his truth. You could speak to your own heart the truth that God is near, that God is for you because of his great love and the fact that he is for you, he has forgiven you completely in Christ. And in Christ he's made reconciliation and again he's made peace. Don't listen to yourself. Stop listening to the lies of the devil. Says there's no hope, no help. Somebody like you. Speak to yourself the truth. Command your heart to believe the truth. Because you're standing before God, not based on your own performance, 
You're standing before God based on the perfection of the perfect one, the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. That's what gives you access to God. So you can let your flesh speak. You can listen to the lies of the devil. You can let your emotions get involved. Or you can command your heart to believe the word of God, the truth of the gospel. That's the choice that we all have to make every single day. As we're all a part of this battle all the time. Verse 17 says, take up the helmet of salvation. Well, why do you put a helmet on? Well, to protect your head. Protect your mind. Satan likes to uh, throw blows directed towards the unbeliever. He likes to attack the head, right? And the helmet of salvation doesn't refer to getting saved. Take up the helmet of salvation. That doesn't refer to getting saved. Because listen, you would not be involved in this war if you were not already a believer. Listen, Satan would not be attacking you with anxiety and doubt over the issue of your salvation if you were not already in Christ. He'd just leave you alone. And the only people who can take up the armor of God are those who are saved by grace alone in Christ, right? Those who are already a part of the supernatural battle against this Satan and his demonic forces. So when you take up the helmet of salvation, you're guarding your mind with the truth. And you're putting on again a living hope of what God said he has done for you in Christ. You're protecting your mind with the truth. Strengthening your heart for the salvation that has been won for you on Christ's merit. Not your own merit. And when you take up the helmet of salvation, that means the battle that you're a part of to protect your mind with the truth, by the truth, so that you can act on the truth. So that you can live according to the truth. Because Satan is always there. Satan always comes and brings the sword that leads either to discouragement or doubt. Doubt that says, well, I hope I'm saved. Don't feel like I'm saved today, but I hope I'm saved. I hope God can accept me. Doubt always comes when we question God's word. When we question God's goodness. When we question God's dependability. Doubt always comes when we think that our relationship with God is based on our own effort and not the perfection of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, doubt always leads to discouragement. It's one of the greatest, most disturbing attacks of the devil uh, against the believer is to have them believe that they've lost their salvation or that they could lose their salvation by something they do, something they don't do. Again, causing them to doubt God's promises, God's power, God's goodness, God's truth. So when you take up the helmet of salvation, you take on truth. God's truth, stable truth, firm truth, reliable truth. The truth that salvation is all of God. And then when you apply that truth into your mind, you believe God's word. You believe the truth that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. John 3 and 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God's truth that says in John six thirty seven, all that the Father gives to me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. John ten and twenty eight, I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. That's what happens when you take up and put on your mind to you protect your mind with the helmet of salvation. Then he goes on and says the sword of the spirit. The perfect spiritual weapon that we need 
the weapon of divine origin, the weapon of divine power that needs to be always at hand. I'll give you a hint. It's this. right? It's this book, and it's this book alone. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, God's truth. Truth that is so powerful that it transforms and changes people. Truth that moves people from the realm of falsehood and error into the realm of truth and reality. Uh, Truth that is so powerful it takes people from the realm of darkness and transfers them into the realm of light. Truth that is so powerful that it takes people from sin and death and takes them to righteousness and new life in Christ. That's God's word. And God's word shall make you free. God's truth, not your feelings. God's truth not your feelings, allows you to stand confident and assured that we are saved without a doubt. And again, not because of anything that we've done, but because of everything that God has done through Christ. Because genuine salvation, true salvation, with great assurance, is found in those who love Christ. Those who love the Father. Is that true of you? Do you love the Father? Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you desire to obey God's word? Are you thankful for all that God has done for you in Christ? Do do you want to see Christ honored in your life by a pattern of obedience? If so, that's all evidence of genuine saving faith. Do you reject this present evil world? Do you hate all the wickedness that is in it? Is your life bent towards heavenly priorities, eternal matters? Are you eager for Christ to return? Are you longing to be delivered from this body of sin and to become more like Christ? If so, that's evidence of new life within you. Is there a decreasing pattern of sin in your life? Again, that does not mean that we are without sin, that there's no sin in our life because of the reality of the power of indwelling sin in our unredeemed flesh. But is there a decreasing pattern of sin in your life? Are you pursuing Christ more and more in his righteousness? Is sin a less a habitual pattern of your life now? And you want to please Christ. You want to honor him. That you never want to do anything that would bring reproach upon the name of God or the, the reproach upon the name of Christ. That too is evidence of salvation. A lot of people who struggle with the assurance of their salvation, uh, I, I find that they often have one which the Puritans used to call the besetting sin. And they have a besetting sin in a person's life, something they do over and over again and over and over again, and they can't get rid of it. Uh, they they say, seemingly can't conquer it. It doesn't matter what it is, smoking, it could be overeating, whatever it might be. And, and they fear that the struggle with these things means that they're not saved. But listen, the very struggle against that sin is, uh, itself is evidence of life within you. Because the unregenerate man doesn't care a bit about God's standards. He doesn't care a bit about God's authority. He doesn't care what God thinks about his habits. He doesn't care about what uh, God thinks about anything that he does. But the Christian is radically different. The Christian is radically different. He's no longer a slave of sin. He's offered himself... Uh, to the as a servant of the most high god as it says in romans 6 and 14 through 17 18 all that passage of scripture it's true that a christian can still sin a a christian may even sin frequently but sinning frequently is not the same thing as practicing sin or being a a slave to sin do do you see any signs of uh, fruit in your life the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace patience kindness 
goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Are these now a part of your life at least a little bit? If so, it's signs of salvation. It's signs that you're of life, signs that you're safe, signs that the work of God is in your life. Therefore, by command of the scripture, don't be anxious. Don't be fearful. Don't doubt. Trust God's word. Speak God's truth to yourself, and God's word will set you free. Right? I hope that's, that, that's helpful, because I know people struggle with that issue a lot. But again, our performance isn't the issue. The issue is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to have you take your Bible and turn back to John 8, and I'm going to see if I can get us back on track. And for you who are here for the first time this morning, you get two sermons for the price of one. So it's a good deal for you. Lord willing, and I don't die of a heart attack while I'm here in the pulpit, you'll see something that you never thought you'd see happen. I might actually finish this paragraph. Now we're back in Johnny. Now remember, Jesus is teaching in the temple. And the religious leaders have rejected him. He has confronted their false deceptive system, and they want him dead. Verse 30. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. And again, we've been studying, as we've been studying, right, the rest of this chapter proves this is really false faith. It's unbelieving belief. Verse 31. Therefore... Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, right? There's a certain level of intellectual assent by some to think what Jesus says might be true. But these people aren't ready to yield their life to Christ. They aren't prepared to yield to the far-reaching allegiance and demands that trust, real trust, and saving faith demands. Again, these people are of those who believe, yet they don't believe. I told you last time, this is the most dangerous position to find yourself on a spiritual level. This is halfway to Christ. Now, in the context, Jesus later describes these same, quote-unquote, Jews who had believed as those who were still slaves of sin, verse 34, those who really did not love him, verse 42, those who could not hear or understand what he was saying, verse 43, those who were actually children of the devil, verse 38, verse 41, verse 44, those who actually refuse to believe in him, verse 45 through 47. Those who supposedly believe have in fact blasphemed him, verse 48, verse 52. Jesus describes these same Jews who, quote-unquote again, had believed as those who sought to kill him, verse 37, verse 40, verse 59. As Jesus spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed, and here comes the standard, here's the benchmark, here's how you distinguish the true from the false. Verse 31, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. If you continue in my word, if you follow my teaching, if you hold on to my teaching, then you're disciples, mathetes, true learners, true followers. Those who are true followers of Christ, those who are true disciples of Christ, who have real saving faith, continue, remain, abide, hold on to, or are obedient to Christ's word. If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. So that's the true mark of true faith, to continue to abide in Christ's word. It's not the condition 
for getting saved because salvation is by faith alone, but rather it is evidence that you are already saved. It's evidence that your faith in Christ is genuine because you hold on to tightly Christ's word. And Christ's word here in the context really is everything that he taught. Everything that he taught. It's all summed up in everything he is, everything that he did for us upon the cross. Uh, to continue in Christ's word speaks of perseverance, steadfastness of faith. It means you started with his word. That was the starting point for salvation, the entry point of salvation in your life. You took the word of God and you read from the word of God that you were a sinner. You read that you were in a desperate position before a holy God and that you were a part of that great crowd of people all in context of all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. You realize that you're under God's condemnation. You realize that you're a just object of, your, of God's wrath against your sin, and then you saw that Jesus Christ was your only hope. And then you came to believe in God and his kindness and his love, and you believe the fact that God sent Christ into the world to pay the penalty for your sin debt, the penalty that you could not pay. Therefore, you, you repented, you turned from your sin to God in Christ through God's word. And you believe that God saves by faith alone, apart from works. So you stop trusting in yourself. Uh, you no longer trust in yourself. You no longer trust in your own goodness. You no longer trust in your own good works, but you trust in Christ. You humble yourself completely under the word of God, and you called out for mercy. And then you rely totally and completely on what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross. You believe the fact, historically, that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, that God accepted his sacrifice on your behalf in total. The payment is full. Nothing else can be done. Nothing else needs to be done because Christ has done it all. That's what it means if you abide in my word, if you hold on tightly to the gospel, to those truths that Christ came into the world to proclaim. Following Christ. Obeying Christ, willing to give up everything and anything for him, then you are truly disciples of mine. If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Again, the mark of genuine saving faith is not mental or verbal profession. It's to believe upon Christ. It's to believe upon Christ and to continue to abide in his word. You continue in obedience to the word. Right? The scripture, those are disciples. Disciples, true followers of Christ, are always word-oriented. I've been mentioning that throughout the entire series. It's always the words of Christ. It's always the words of Christ. It's always the word of Christ that separates the unbeliever from the believer. The unbeliever hates the word of Christ, but the believer loves the word of Christ. He cherishes it. True disciples recognize it's the word of God's grace that is able to build them up. True believers, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word so that they may grow in respect to salvation. A true believer longs for the word, loves the word of God. It's his delight. And not only that, the true believer delights in the word of God. He abides in it continually. He takes it up. He never departs from it. He holds it dearly and carefully. He doesn't run off into some other kind of teaching that somehow somebody says, this is superior to what the Bible says. He rejects all of that and says, no, Christ alone is the authority. The word of God is your own authority. I'm going to take my stand with the word of God. He fixes his hope and help on God and not upon his word. 
Verse 32, therefore Christ says, you shall know the truth. Again, the truth is found in the person of Jesus Christ himself, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. John says in John 1, 17, the introduction of the, of the gospel, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've been paying attention. We live in a world where there's no such thing as truth. Truth, absolute truth, has been largely abandoned. And along with it, hope. We live in a dark world. A dark world that has rejected the light of the gospel. A dark world that has rejected the light of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. A world with no hope that has rejected truth incarnate. A world that has rejected truth inscripturated, right? The Bible, the Word of God. Therefore, it is a world that is captured by Satan in his kingdom of darkness. It is very true what John says, 1 John 5 and 19. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But not so for the true believer. For the true believer in the midst of difficulties of life, in the midst of difficult circumstances, the true true believer always has what? Hope. Always has hope. Because the true believer has been delivered, freed, emancipated. If you abide in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine. Again, verse 32, you shall know the truth. And then he adds, the truth shall make you free. Listen. You know why the unbelieving world has power over everybody in the current circumstances in which we live? Because the unbeliever fears what? Death. Unbeliever fears death. But the believer has been freed from the tyranny of sin and death because they know Christ. And Christ has literally, historically, physically defeated death. That reality gives us hope causes us not to fear because we're in union with one who has defeated death on our behalf. That's great hope. The true believer has been freed from the tyranny of sin, the tyranny of death because of Christ, because the true believer knows the truth. The true believer in Christ has been set free on a spiritual level, free from the lies of Satan that hold everybody else around us in bondage and in captivity free from condemnation, free from judgment, free from spiritual ignorance, free from the ravages of spiritual death. And in the context of John 8, from the, free from the overwhelming power of sin in a person's life. If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. You shall know the truth, the truth shall make you free. The true believer has been liberated because of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is exactly why when the Lord Jesus Christ began his ministry, he took up the scroll, he turned to it, and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Jesus Christ has come to set the captives free. And those who have been set free, those of us who have been set free in Christ, we must listen. We must stand firm. We must stand firm in this fight. 
against the lies of the devil, being strong in the Lord and the strength of God's might, putting on the full armor of God, standing against the schemes of the devil, taking up the full armor of God, resisting in the evil day, standing firm, standing firm, having girded uh, uh, our uh, loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having our feet shod at the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition, taking up the shield of faith, able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one, taking the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Jesus says, look, if you abide in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. It's tremendous. And in the context of the story here in John 8, Christ is offering, listen, he's offering to the religious leaders who are standing in front of them freedom. And indignantly they reject his offer because they're blind to his condition, insisting that they're already free. Verse 33. They answered him, we are Abraham's offspring. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say, we, we, how is it that you, say uh, you shall become free? Well, it's an interesting comment. Since the nation of Israel had been enslaved historically by Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Syria, and now by the Romans, we'd have to assure that, that the fellows probably aren't thinking about that, right? They're talking about where Christ is offering them something other than political freedom. And he is. He's referring to them freedom from on a spiritual level. What do they hide behind? They, they hide behind their religion. They hide behind their ethnic identity. Uh, we are Abraham's descendants. And again, the type of freedom that Christ is offering them doesn't come from racial backgrounds or religious identity. These spiritually uh, dead, blind men and their pride were blinded by their self-righteousness. They have a religion that looks really good on the outside, right? Mark 7 Verses 6 and 7, Christ says their hearts are far from God. They look good on the outside, but their hearts are far from God. And Jesus, who knew their hearts, said of them in Matthew 23 that they were blind guides. Verse 24, verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You're like whitewashed tomb, with tombs which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. Even so, you too outwardly appear righteous uh, to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Verse 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? You know, obviously Jesus wasn't overly impressed by their religiosity. They thought they were righteous, but their sin had deceived them. Because that's what false faith always does. False faith is unable to recognize one's own slavery to sin. Therefore, Jesus clarifies the type of freedom that he was offering to them. Verse 34. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Now, when the text says truly, truly, sometimes it's translated in various ways, verily, verily, or amen, amen. It's introducing a statement of great importance. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And commits sin, it's in the present. It's a present tense. It's not just an individual act of sin. As one writer says, it's sin as the principle of life. Sin is a principle of life, innate fallenness, essential wickedness. And the pattern of these so-called religious leaders, the pattern of their life was to sin. You say, well, how's that? Because the sin that they repeated over and over again 
was their corrupted religious system that told them and everyone else that if you do these things or don't do these things, then you can make yourself right with God, which is completely against the word of God. They were slaves to that false system. Everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. And someone who is a slave means that you're absolutely under the control, under the domination, unable to free yourself from that person. That's the unbeliever. That's the person who's a slave of sin, totally under the control of another, completely unable to free themselves. Every aspect of the unbeliever's life is enslaved. Their thoughts, their words, their actions, their deeds, their motivations. They are controlled by, dominated by, ruled over by sin, by rebellion against God, by bondage to iniquity, controlled by various lusts and pleasures. It's what I read earlier, right? Everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Ephesians 2, we used to be dead in our trespasses and sins. We used to walk according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. We used to all live in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We used to all be children of wrath, even as the rest. And again, that's where these religious leaders are. They're blinded by their sin. They thought that their external religion and their relationship to Adam or to Abraham would save them and make them right with God. Because after all, men, they're the chosen people. They have the law. They have the prophets. They have the covenants. And again, Christ in his kindness is pointing out the fact they don't belong to God. They have a relationship with God, but not a saving relationship. They're deceived. Desperately, I need to be set free from the spiritual blindness, their spiritual blindness, their spiritual bondage. And the only way for that to happen... The only way for them to be released from the grip of sin and the penalty of sin is to be united with Christ by faith in his death, burial, and resurrection. It's only by repentance and faith in Christ that they can be released from their bondage because only Jesus Christ has the power over sin. Only Jesus Christ has the power over death. Only Jesus Christ can make a man truly free from sin's ravages and eternal penalty. Verse 35 says, A slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. Again, the Lord uses this analogy of slavery because he's warning these religious leaders. He's saying, look, a son has permanent right to the household. Slave doesn't. And even if these guys were Abraham's descendants, even if they're part of God's chosen nation, Jesus is telling them that they're slaves. Slaves of sin. They're not sons. And the system that they're a part of, the system that they're holding on to, if they continue to hold on to that, they're in danger eternally. He's telling them they're going to be left out of God's inheritance. And again, make no mistake, they understood very clearly because by the end of the chapter, they want to kill him. They understand exactly what he's saying. It's probably in part because of something he said to them previously in Matthew chapter 8, verse 11. Jesus says, I say to you, speaking to these guys, I say to you that many shall come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, that's an absolutely scathing rebuke to these religious leaders who are standing before him who are actually slaves of sin and not sons of God. And again, it's only those who repent and place their faith in Christ who are the true sons of God. All other men are still slaves, slaves of sin, slaves of their father, the devil. Verse 36, if therefore the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. 
Because true freedom only comes from Christ. Freedom from the bondage of sin, freedom from the slavery to sin, freedom from the lies of the deceiver, freedom from the punishment of sin, from its penalty, and one day, freedom from sin's very presence. That's why, again, Paul says, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's a true disciple. That's a true follower. Someone who has genuine saving faith in Christ, they persevere in the word of God. Through all life's ups, downs, struggles, issues, faithful to the end, loving God, loving Christ, desiring to be obedient to both, to do all that is asked of them because he's a son, not a slave. And because he's a son and not a slave, a true believer is going to enjoy the forgiveness of sin in his father's house forever. Amen? Amen.